Here's a call out to employers. When people totally burn out, they leave. Period. This is the Leadership 480 Podcast. Hey there, leaders, and welcome back to the Leadership 480 podcast. And today I'm so excited that we actually have a return guest, one of our most popular, Dr. Jerry Paleo. Jerry is an absolute expert on burnout. Uh, she has her own company, Change Management Solutions, and a PhD in management, specializing in organizational change and burnout. And don't miss her great TEDx talk on burnout. Uh, And just now, the reason she's here today is that she's completed some new research on how burnout is affecting women in particular. And I will say it's it's alarming, but there's some hope. So stick around for the whole episode. It's not as dire as it seems, but things we need to watch for. Jerry's worked with us on a couple of micro courses on topics related to things like burnout, overachieving, similar things. Um, and we brought her back given the success of our last podcast. So welcome back to the Leadership 480 podcast, Jerry. Well, thank you for having me again. I hope I can live up to that intro. <laughs> no worries. I th- I'm absolutely uh, positive that you can. So you've been working on some new research about um, how burnout has affected women. And I think so many of us have heard in the news, you know, women have been leaving the workforce in droves during this pandemic. And it was a problem before the pandemic and it has really become a problem now. So tell me a little bit about your research and what you're learning about um, how burnout is affecting these women. Well, you know, women have been, women and men, quite frankly, have been burning out in, I hate to use the term epidemic since we've been in a pandemic, but it's really been an epidemic in the workplace for um, many years. I think the pandemic, uh, because there was no longer a distinction between your work life and your personal life, that it suddenly brought burnout to the forefront. Um, In fact, everything's burnout. There's Zoom burnout. You've got chocolate burnout. (laughs) You've got exercise burnout. They're they're calling everything burnout. But uh, I think what happened with women during the pandemic is even though millennials are, are not as... Uh, stuck to traditional roles, women still tend to have the most uh, important role of taking care of their children, you know, and there's there's help by spouse or, or someone else. And I think when the pandemic hit and women were working from home, it wasn't just trying to find a quiet place at home, but it was the homeschooling of their children and everything else. And this is uh, paralleling some of the research uh, findings when I interviewed women who have burned out. And interestingly, you know, uh, I focus a lot on work burnout. And what I found with these women is, I mean, these were high achievers, in fact, overachievers. They were also people pleasers. They were nurturing to their staffs. They were, they were that type of employees that employers pray for. And they were working crazy hours and everything else. But it seems like when something happened in their personal life, that was the tipping point. And unfortunately, most of the employers didn't recognize it. And so these women went down the downward spiral into a full-blown burnout. Um, I think what's happened with the pandemic is women are choosing 
now how they're going to work and how they're going to spend their time. And in this research, I was able to identify the top three symptoms for women. And I've been doing some, uh, I'm kind of geeky. So I've also <laughs> been doing some analysis of, is it different by generation? The number one uh, symptom of burnout was exhaustion or fatigue or feeling like you're running on empty. And as we all know from this pandemic, uh, you know, the utopia of working from home and life will be calm. Many people found they were working longer hours and without mm -hmm. having that uh, mental break of going to work and then coming home from work, people started getting um, more and more stressed and they became more ex exhausted. The second um, major symptom that I discovered was these women were unable to focus or concentrate. Um, and a lot of them felt kind of spacey or even confused, but they had a, a lot of difficulty concentrating and focusing. And if you think about it with the pandemic, if you're working from home and you have all these other uh, challenges and responsibilities, it can be difficult to prioritize. And then finally, uh, the biggie is irritability and crankiness. <laughs> <laughs> People who were burned out um, are are very cranky. Uh, uh, many of them also experienced a lot of anger and a, a short fuse. And so I think that if you look at these top three symptoms, because the women I interviewed didn't all just burn out recently. Some of these burnouts were earlier, but it's the same type of thing. And I think the pandemic just exacerbated these symptoms. Yeah, I, that makes so much sense. And you know, what you were saying about what high achievers these women are. I think that's such an important point that why companies need to care about this, why you need to be looking at your team, that often the people so susceptible to burnout are the ones you really, really need to keep. I mean, it's it's their desire to, to do things well that is often causing this. Well, and a lot of these women talked about when they left their jobs and uh, here's a call out to employers. When people totally burn out, they leave, period. They don't, because they have to leave the, the stressful situation. Um, but I think that, um, you know, when, when you look at, at burnout and you look at the overachieving, um, it's it seems to be coupled with people pleasing. And these women talked about something that I was fascinated with. They talked about wearing armor at work. Wow. Because they had to like steal themselves up to deal with all the stuff in the workplace. But the problem was with their teams, they were earth mama. They were nurturers. You know, th they were the type of bosses that you'd you'd go through the fire for. And it, it that's cognitive dissonance because they're doing two different things. And many of these women delayed dealing with their burnout and delayed leaving their jobs because they wanted to protect their teams. So they were literally falling on their swords for their teams. And, you know, the other thing I'd, I'd like to mention is, you know, there, there's all these warning signs that come up, but across the board, the women ignored them. They didn't have time. These were the overachievers. I'm not talking high achievers. I'm talking the overachievers. And the other thing I found is that, you know, perfectionism is usually tied to burnout. Mm -hmm. These women weren't perfectionists. And that's the scary part. 
They knew when something was good enough, but they had so many complete competing responsibilities and everything was a priority and everything was urgent that they didn't take the time to say, you know something, I'm not sleeping at night. I'm waking up every hour. Gee, maybe something's wrong. And um, in fact, I know I'm kind of go, um, jumping ahead here, but I asked them what the most difficult part of recovery was. And many of them said, admitting there was a problem. Hmm. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a real, real issue. And these women aren't coming back into the office. In fact, many of them started their own businesses. That's so interesting. And I'm going to want to dive into that. So, but tell me a little bit when they said the problem was, you know, one of their biggest hurdles was admitting there was a problem. Is that, does that be, is that because they felt like, you know, it, their feelings were their own fault? Were they feeling like it was someone else's fault? I mean, what was the barrier to admitting there was the problem? Part of it's superwoman complex. Let me tell you a story. These women were the women who had great jobs, great marriages. They went to all their kids' soccer team games. They were the ones that were held up on a pedestal as, man, I wish I could be like you. Um, I kind of call it the Martha Stewart syndrome. You know, Martha Stewart. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I mean, you know, some of her recipes are good, but she's kind of like my aunt. She always kind of leaves one step or one ingredient out. But um, <laughs> it never quite that, turns out the way when I make it. That the way oh, she does. I know it never it never looks the same. You sit there and go, "It's going to be beautiful." Oh my God, this is horrible. I can't. I can't even uh, <laughs> uh, serve it. But um, I think with you know everybody looked up to them. I had one woman who shared a story with me of one of her lowest points, she was really fried. I mean, she was having a lot of physical symptoms, emotional system, symptoms, everything else. And she kept powering through because that's what we're supposed to do, right? You know, keep your emotions at the door. You know, you come to work, you have to work. There was a town, um, town hall meeting in her company and she was at a director level and she opened up and was vulnerable and shared how she was feeling and how burned out. Well, after the collective gasp from all the people in the company, she thought, I, I'm going to lose my job. I've, I, I'm off my pedestal. It's horrible. A few dozen people came up to her and said, oh my God, you're describing what I'm feeling. And you're a director. You have it all together. You seem to be able to balance everything. If it happens to you, it can happen to me. And so I think a lot of the reason for ignoring is there's so many responsibilities. And these women were loyal. I mean, they wanted to do a, a good job and they cared about people. And what they did was they put themselves last. Sound familiar with women in general? Take care of everybody else. And then maybe if there's anything left over, I'll take care of me. But it goes back to that idea of when you're on a plane and traveling with a child, if there's problems and the oxygen mask comes down, your reaction may be to put it on your child, but you have to take care of yourself first so that you can take care of the other people. So I think that's why they ignored a lot of the warning signs. Wow, that's so interesting. And and you mentioned that, you know, their their thought was to power through. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about 
you know, length of time that this goes on, because sometimes I think there's an impression that we just have to get through this, get through the next two weeks, things will be better or, or whatever, you know, and sometimes that's the case. That's sort of the regular stress, like it's a bad week this week, but we'll get through. Um, so how long does it take for burnout to kind of set in that it's burnout, it's not just stress? And then how long does it last? How long does it last until they recover? Well, this is this is really interesting because um, these women made deals with themselves and did exactly what you said. If I can just get through this, it, then there was never respite or reprieve or recovery. And it went the next week it was, well, if I can just get through this, then I'll be feeling better. Um, this is scary. Uh, these women over... 61.5% overall, their burnout lasted over a year. Wow. Lasted. And the, in the uh, Generation X group, 40% of them had burnout that lasted over two years. I mean, wow. this is not something that lasts three months. It's um, my original research found that. Uh, the progression into burnout was a gradual realization. It wasn't a specific event. Mm -hmm. But when I started interviewing these women, it's that combination. It's growing. It's growing. Something's wrong. And then there's that pivotal experience that just takes them right over the edge. Mm -hmm. And when these women shared these experiences, and I'll tell you, that it, it make your hair curl. Uh, when they shared these experiences, no matter when they had the burnout, they were right back into how it feels, which is why, you know, you mentioned my TEDx talk. There's a similarity, I believe, between burnout and PTSD. So, you know, the progression downward can take, at you know, at least a year and then they're in it for at least a year. And then recovery takes, on average, two years. Now you're talking wow. four years in a person's life where they feel horrible. They've got mental issues. They've got emotional issues. But they, they a lot of times they don't seem to take action until it comes up with some type of a physical problem. Mm -hmm. I had one woman say to me that she was grit, gritting and grinding her teeth so badly at night, she got bone spurs in oh. her jaw. Gosh. And and, and they, you can't get rid of them once you have them. So, you know, it, it's two years is like, wow, that's a long time. But I interviewed women that were five years from the burnout. And they're like, I still haven't recovered. Because they went to another position, never fully went through the self-awareness and the um you know, the, the the peeling back to find out what caused their burnout and what they need. And they went into what I call a residual burnout. So, so they went to a new job thinking everything's fine. I left the stressor. Things mm -hmm. are going to be great. Bam, something happened and they're right back into it, either into the uh, the steps leading to burnout with your frustration, anger and apathy or the full blown burnout. And so, you know, that's that's really scary. And think about it from a leadership position and from a corporate or organizational um, uh, perspective, a lot of these people uh, across the generations are burning out. It's not generational. Um, and think of how miserable they are. Think of the lost talent when they finally leave because it comes down to my job or me. 
the other thing I found is that many of these women were the uh, primary breadwinners in their companies or oh, in their uh, families. Yeah. Excuse me. Sure. So they had a lot of responsibility for that. So they just, you know, kept pushing and pushing. But many of them left their jobs because it was either, you know, if I don't take, if I don't leave, I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. It's that extreme. So I think one of the big takeaways is that burnout is not that you're tired. If you can sleep it off or you can go on a vacation and feel totally refreshed when you come back, you were just stressed. You weren't burned out. And I think many, um, I heard one uh, international business leader answer a question in a uh, in a summit where the guy said, I- I'm just so tired. I'm, I-, I don't know what to do. I can't think straight. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, he's burned out. This guru said to him, well, take a long weekend vacation every quarter. Well, you can imagine I was jumping up and down. You know, thank <laughs> God I was online. They didn't see me because I'm like, no, that that's not going to help. That's not dealing with what the problem is. So yeah, it it it's a serious issue because it is so long in terms of you know burning out, experiencing the burnout, admitting that there's a problem and then recovering. And um it it hurts everybody. It hurts the company, it hurts the individual and it hurts the clients. So I get it. You know, it's not as simple as taking a three-day weekend. I wish it was. To oh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> uh, you know, give everybody a couple more PTO days, problem solved. Um, but it's you're, it sounds like, I mean, recovery is is possible from it. It can take a long time. Yes. But what does that start to look like when people recover? How does, what can they do? What happens when they recover? Well, the ideal recovery, and now this is assuming that you're not going into a residual burnout, that you think you recovered and then you really burned out again, because that just prolongs the process. But what I found with these women with the full recovery is enlightening, it's empowering, and it really is a source of hope. In my original BDOC model, it was um, an inverse bell curve. And uh, it started off with high levels of hope, and then it descended into burnout. And then when you came recovered, um, it was a revised psychological contract with work, which is, I will give you this, but I expected this in return. But it was not at the same high level of hope. And that was good, you know what I mean? But it wasn't all-encompassing. And what I found from these women is that when they fully recover, that tail goes above beyond the revised psychological contract. And it really gets into Maslow's self-actualization. They have boundaries. They know who they are. They're not afraid to say what it is they need. They're not afraid of leaving toxic relationships. They are still um, driven, but it's purpose-driven. And they're living their lives based on their purpose and doing doing good in the world. I mean, it's it's just this amazing kind of a transformation. And they're happy and they're peaceful and they're calm and they take care of themselves so they're better able to take care of other people. So it's a, um, that's what an ultimate recovery looks like. And they don't go back and they, they um, protect themselves not with these rigid boundaries and walls, but it's like, okay, you want me to do this. This isn't going to work. I can't. Let's try something else, which means they're they're better employees. 
they're, they're not going to posture to say, oh, yeah, I can do this. I can do this. Put something more on my plate. I'm working 100 hours a week, but I don't need to sleep. They don't do that anymore. And as a result, their quality of life, the quality of work goes up, which is that's pretty exciting. Really exciting that's and really hopeful. Yeah, I mean, it's great to hear that there's hope at the end of this, that if you are someone, if you're a leader who's listening right now, that there's and you're experiencing some of this, there there is hope of of setting boundaries and being able to do better. Um, but you did also mention earlier, and I'm curious, are a lot of these women, what kinds of jobs are they going back to? Similar roles are that you mentioned a little bit about many of them are starting their own businesses. A lot of them so do. when they come back, what does that look like? When they come back, it, it's not the money that's the driver. It's not the status anymore. It's doing the work. And, uh, and I know this sounds artsy-fartsy, but if you really <laughs> think about what's happening in society, that's really critical. And millennials, thank heavens for millennials, are much more uh, purpose-driven with a social consciousness. And, uh, and that's a good thing. But I, I found the same thing going on with baby boomers and Gen Xers. You know, uh, mm -hmm. are they coming back to the same jobs? Yes and no, they're in their fields, but uh, it's kind of changed what they're doing. Like, for example, um, I had one uh, international director who flew all around the world. She said, I'm not doing that again, because she never had any time, any downtime to get her, get her body acclimated. So they are changing in terms of what they're going into. The other thing I found really interesting is many of these women went back to school oh, and got wow. PhDs or master's degrees. Uh -huh. And um, it was kind of a call out that I'm doing this for me. This is what I want to do. And I'm going to choose what I do in my life. So that's pretty exciting. I think that's fantastic, and but I, and I'm as I'm listening, I'm thinking of it from two on the individual side. Mm -hmm. This is this is good. You can you can find it. It's going to look different um, in the future. But if I'm listening to this from the the company side, you know, if I yeah. if I were sitting here as a senior leader, a C-suite leader, things like that, this is this is panicking to, to think of like you know, not only are your great performers. I mean, you're talking. You know, you you reference women who are directors and and, mm -hmm. and 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 team leaders and high level leaders, and I would be sitting here thinking, not only are we at risk of losing all this talent, mm -hmm. they may never come back. And mm -hmm. you know, there's such a there's such an important um, focus right now on building more women in the pipeline and right. and having gender diversity in leadership. And they were already struggling long before this to fill the right. pipeline with more women leaders. Um, and if I'm and if as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, if they're all burning out at these levels, how am I ever going to get women into into these roles where where we need them, where we need that talent and all that they have to offer? Yeah. Um, we can't afford to lose it. So, given that seriousness, what did your research show about what companies are doing to prevent this? Because they should be panicking right now. <laughs> you ready for the one word answer? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. And that's what Absolutely I was afraid of. Absolutely <laughs> nothing. In fact, one of the questions that I asked was, did your employer uh, help you uh, to avoid or overcome burnout? And I got two responses. One was maniacal laughter, like <laughs> really? Or the other was the, the extreme of that quiet 
No. Mm. No, they didn't care. And in my original research, I found two, you know, the top two things that stressed out people. Number one was poor leadership, which that goes right up into DDI's uh, alley in terms of improving yeah. leadership because it's a win-win-win. You know, it's a win for the company, win for the employee, and win for the, the customer. But number two was the belief that the company doesn't care about me. Wow. Lack of organizational caring. Many of these women had five or six bosses in like a two or three year period. Wow. So th th their bosses didn't know them. It's just like put, put someone, you know, put a hamster in the wheel and let them go. But they never had that one-on-one. -on -one. So I think if you're a leader, what you need to do, and there, there's really a strong movement for this right now, is to practice empathy and compassion. And that gets into the soft, uh, squishy stuff. It, you know, how do you measure that? Am I a level eight? Am I a level 10? Am I a level two on compassion? You know, how do you measure that? Because, you know, in business, what gets measured gets done. But I think it's where you have to, to look at your policies. It's kind of the same with discrimination. Um, you may not be trying to discriminate, but there could be an adverse impact. You know, it's and the oops, I didn't know defense doesn't cut it. So I think employers need to practice greater empathy and compassion. And that may be the silver lining in the pandemic and the work from home. Because if you think back, and we've all seen the cartoons about this, people were in their little business suits for their Zoom meetings at the beginning of the pandemic. And then they decided we're going to be business from the waist up and sweats and flip flops from the waist down. And then we started relaxing a little more. And then we have the cat that walks across the screen. And then we have the child who comes up. And suddenly people were seemed as human. They're not just employees anymore. These are people that have lives outside of work. And they have things that they care about. And I think the smart companies are going to learn that lesson. And really, and I've been screaming about this for years, to put the human back into human resources. They're, they're not robots. They are not automatons. And, and one of the things that you can look for in an employee who might be burned out is that they appear very robotic. They're just going through the motions. They're also cranky if you ask them anything that's not in their schedule. Okay, so the irritability is there. But I think it's uh, having empathy and compassion for the whole life of the employee. Um, and also to recognize what the organi organizational stressors are. And, you know, I've, I don't believe that corporations exist. Okay, now that sounds like a weird statement, I know. <laughs> but corporations only exist on paper for tax purposes. Okay, now we can talk about culture and everything else, but guess what? Culture is not created by that piece of paper. Culture is created by people. And people are complex. And they have different needs, they have different desires, they have different wants. And I think companies need to recognize that. I mean, we had to with this pandemic. I mean, when you have the cat walking across, you know, the screen, or I love it when they just sit there and then look at the screen like, hey, I'm part of this meeting too. <laughs> the, you know, employees are seen as human and it breaks down those barriers. We are not in a manufacturing or industrial age where, you know, you've got an assembly line. If it, and if Joe keels over on the assembly line, move the dead body, put Tom in his place and things go right on. 
we're in a knowledge age, an information age, and that is people, despite artificial intelligence. But, you know, that's still programmed by somebody. And what are your assumptions behind that artificial intelligence? So I think that, um, you know, leaders should be frightened because this is a wake-up call. And more and more people are saying, I don't know if I want to do this. Just the simple thing of, um, you know, demanding that employees come back into the office because it's it's safe. Many employees are saying, you know, I did my job really well from home. Mm-hmm. Why can't I continue doing that? It works for me. I mean, why do you have, you know, form follows function. You don't necessarily have to be that rigid. What they are finding, though, is a hybrid workplace is is better, like with two weeks in the uh, two days in the office and the rest of the time at home, because people were feeling lonely. Even the introverts were feeling lonely. And you need that um, that personal connection with people. So, yeah, organizational leaders should be frightened, but they shouldn't be paralyzed by it. There are things that they can do. So if you're a leader, you know, we just did some research in our global leadership forecast. And um, one of the things that leaders told us, it's a survey, like 15,000 leaders, right? And they, they were, they told us that they were one of the things they're least prepared to do is prevent burnout on their teams. Um, So they, they know they're weak at this and they know to look for it. And they just, it, they don't feel like they're they know what to do about it. So if you see it on your team, you see someone doing the signs you mentioned, acting robotic, they're irritated, they're stressed. And and normally this is a high performer, right? Who's always, Mm -hmm. this is somebody who's always ready to take on the next thing. And you're starting to see these signs. Can you bring them back from the brink? Or once you see it, are they kind of, or are they gone? Well, let me say two things. First of all, the reason why I believe organizational leaders can't address the burnout is because they're burned out themselves. We saw that too. <laughs> we yeah. saw that too in the research that yeah. a huge percentage of leaders, what they said was we had asked them about whether they, how they feel used up at the end of the day and how often, oh, yeah. and it was, it was really high. It was very high. Well, yeah. And, and, and there's, there's a fear behind it. There's a real fear. If I don't perform, I can lose my job. If I don't meet the numbers, something is going to happen. And the first thing, it's like the director in that town hall. She had the guts and the courage in front of the whole company to say, I'm burned out and this is what's happening. But that opens the dialogue. And there's a lot of shame with burnout. Um, I remember I talked to a, a former CFO, a woman who was fried in her job. She was in New York City and she had lunch with a friend of hers. And she said, I'm really burned out. The friend rolled her eyes. And this woman said, why are you rolling your eyes? She said, you're in finance in New York City. Get over it. It comes with the territory. Wow. And so there's a shame factor. You know, it's like, because. and, and here's the other thing. Okay, may I go on a, on a, a slight tirade here? <laughs> sure. Um, what I see is that the tools to overcome burnout basically have the underlying assumption that burnout is an individual's maladaptive response to stress. In other words, there's something you're doing wrong. Your time management is wrong. Your expectations are wrong. You're a people pleaser. You know, it's your fault. 
But what I've also discovered is that you can be doing everything right. You can be meditating. You can be um, getting sleep. You can be eating correctly. You can be trying to put in boundaries. But if you're in a toxic workplace, you're still going to fry. It might not be as quickly, but you're still going to fry. So I think with, um, and this, this really is going into Brene Brown. I mean, let's be honest with it, is if the organizational leaders in the C-suite can say, I understand what you're going through because I'm going through it. And then it's going to require organizational change. What is going on in the workplace? What types of policies and procedures and rules are in place that support the uh, descent into burnout? And that's tough. That is really tough because that's looking in the mirror and seeing, seeing all the warts. But one of the things that's important with organizational change is participative management. Well, that's humanity, right? So talk to people. What is it that they need? Don't be so rigid. Be willing to listen. And um, I will say something else, though. A lot of companies are, you know, with uh, the employee well-being programs, and I think they are valid and I think they are important, but it only addresses part of the equation. Learning how to meditate for someone who was always very active and exercised doesn't work. For someone who was very introspective to say, you need to go take a 20-minute walk every day, doesn't work. So what I found in my participants, they went one of two roads. They either went through the body and the physical road first, or they went into the more reflective, spiritual, meditative road. Eventually, the roads crossed. I've been exercising, but now I need to deal with some of my thought processes. So they became more self-reflective. Or I've been self-reflective and I'm feel, beginning to feel better. I need to take care of my body. And they flip over, you know, and but you need both of them. I think that a lot of the well-being programs do not address the context of the burnout. And um, I mean, I've seen situations where people were, were really like, for example, I, I had many women who had a boss who was their mentor, loved the boss. You know, the boss protected them from a lot of things. They were supportive. It was everything you wanted. But then for some reason, the boss left the company, either voluntarily or involuntarily. And suddenly the new boss did not have the same relationship with this woman. So they were lost, you know, and and they're still trying to protect their teams. So, you know, it's a... It's, it's very tough to deal with this problem because it's the dirty little secret. But if you believe that there's a lot of burnout in your company, consider that to be the canary in the coal mine. The canary, you know, the canaries were sent into coal mine to test for uh, toxic gases. And basically, if the canary died, well, that's, that's a sign that something's wrong. Burnout's the canary in the workplace coal mine. If employees are burning out at high levels, it's because something is wrong within the organization and you need to have the courage to address those things. Um, is it easy? No, not at all. Is it gut-wrenching? Yes. And is it going to make uh, immediate change? No, because if you don't have a culture of trust in the first place, 
employees are going to look at you with suspicion. So I do believe that there is hope and it's, it starts at the top. And if uh, people in the C-suite are burned out, you need to put the oxygen mask on, mask on yourself because you will then discover what worked for you to recover from burnout. And then you can help other people. But again, don't just say this is what you should do because every person burned out for a different reason and every person is going to recover in a different way. Oh, that's so powerful. And I think the lesson here too of, um, you know, it's hard for people to admit burnout to to a superhero, you know, someone who is who is who is perfect and you're thinking that you know they've got more stuff than I do and they're doing great like mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say anything I'm just going to leave because I don't think I can cut it here right um such a powerful lesson for leaders and in, in sharing their own vulnerability um and something that that companies can do we've talked about this a you know a long time at DDI about how authenticity vulnerability yes. and leadership can actually be a very powerful tool versus a, a weakness. Um, and oh, all it's the, things the powerful saying. combination. It's the yeah. powerful, you know, but I think in society, we view anything like that, as you said, as being weak. You know, what's going to happen? Somebody's going to take advantage. You know, hey, it, it doesn't work that way because when someone's authentic, you're more likely to be authentic in return. I these are these are great lessons, and I think for those leaders who are listening today, they may be they can be looking for this on their teams, looking to support them, um, looking for the signs, and looking for it in yourself too. And and yeah. being able to admit some of this can be things that if you if you do like your job but are overwhelmed, yeah. um, you know this there are paths forward to to start addressing this burnout. Um, but exactly. it's going to take some some larger support from more people. Um, working on this, working on the empathy, working on meeting the personal and practical needs of everybody as they're going through Mm -hmm. this. And this is all here to stay. So this is wonderful. May I throw one other thing out? Mm -hmm. Be patient with yourself. This, this, This isn't a project that you have deliverables by certain deadlines you know, I will be feeling this much better within three weeks and then in six weeks. You know, and and we tend to do that because it's 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 a way of making sense. And there's this sense of urgency that I have to get rid of it soon. But the more you push, the slower your recovery is going to be. A lot of these women learn how to let go. And that is scary. That is very scary. Uh, what I found in my own life, though, is um, I tended to be a crazy planner and I, I used to be like one of those overachievers. But <laughs> overachievers are overachievers are not high performers. There's a big difference there. You know, overachievers, um, uh, there's usually some sense of I have to prove myself, whereas someone who's a high achiever knows what's what's needed to be done. And um, I think that that in my own life, learning how to let go and not plan everything so minutely allows serendipity to occur. And nobody talks about serendipity in, in management, but it's those little, th- those little things like, oh, wow, I didn't expect that opportunity. But it's just it's continuing. It, it's a, a practice in yoga where it's willful determination, but lack of concern with results, which goes against most business sure. uh, models and business school. But it's still doing the work so that, you know, you do what's essential when you know, when when the pandemic hit and people worked from home. What a lot of companies found is, my God, we're more efficient now than we've ever been. 
Well, yeah. gee, you were focusing on the essential stuff and not all the non-essential. And mm -hmm. so that when you when you do the work and you let go, you're focusing on what's really important. And I think to organizational leaders, uh, may I say that you don't have a company unless you've got employees. They're your only non-duplicatable competitive advantage. Your competitors can reverse engineer everything else that you do, but they can't reverse engineer your people. And that can give you one incredible competitive advantage after this pandemic. That's a fantastic statement. And so I think I'm going to leave it there on this interview <laughs> because it's so powerful. Uh, thank you, Jerry. This session has oh, been... My pleasure. It has been therapeutic for me. I hope everybody listening is feeling much better. You know, we're all we're all feeling a little bit better about our burnout, what to do, how to how to share vulnerability and and move forward. Um, so thank you for spending part of your 480 with us today and, and give this really valuable insight. This is Beth Alms reminding you all to take to make every moment of leadership count.